but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. All right, everyone. Welcome back into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast here on the 5th of October. Diving in here on this Tuesday to everything Minnesota sports. And I think we need to start the show, first of all, talking about the Minnesota Vikings and what they are doing this week as in terms of now their game against uh, against Detroit on Sunday. And I think we need to break down, and this goes far beyond Detroit, because, and we'll talk about Detroit in a little bit, but I think with the Minnesota Vikings, it's fairly certain that you need to beat Detroit. If you don't beat Detroit, then your season's over, in jeopardy, everybody's getting fired, kind of a deal. Uh, this is a game where you should walk in. It's at home against Detroit. You should walk in. You should make Jared Goff feel uncomfortable right away, and it should be done. It should be over with. This shouldn't be a contest. But when the Vikings do play some better teams, and they have some better teams coming up on the schedule, how do they fare offensively and by offensively I mean the offensive line I'm confident that Justin Jefferson Adam Thielen KJ Osborne I'm confident all these guys can have good games despite the circumstances Delvin Cook might have been a little banged up still in his game last Sunday where he only rushed for about 30 yards but I'm still going to guess that against most defenses he's going to play well the biggest thing comes down to the quarterback Kirk Cousins is going to play well if he gets a clean pocket and that's a big if considering that his offensive line is shoddy and that they are going to play some teams that have some pretty good pass rush. So when you look at uh, the Vikings' upcoming schedule here, when you look at what they're doing, they're, again, the goal here, as we're now saying on the Minnesota Sports Podcast, is you need to be 3-3 and by the bye week. 3-3 and by the bye week, you save your season. If you lose either of these next two games, it's tough sledding going forward after the bye week, going into the, uh, going into the rest of the season after that. But that's the thing. They play some pretty darn tough defenses. And when you look at uh, uh when you look at these defense ranked up according to points given up per game. So when you look at teams that just don't give up as many points, uh, you look at some teams that the Vikings are gonna have to play this season. In two weeks, this must-win game against Carolina, they are third in the NFL in points allowed. They have given up the third lowest points. They've only given up 66 points in four games. That's pretty good. And looking at, and again, they haven't played all, I know they just lost to Dallas, so they're 3-1. and one. They haven't, they beat New Orleans, but they also played Jacksonville. It's, you know, obviously there's still some stats that might be kind of a mirage uh, at this part in the season, but looking at the stats on the ground right now, uh, they look to be a pretty darn good team. And when you look at some of the, uh, when you look at some of the stuff in terms of just their team defense overall, when the biggest thing is pass rush. I don't care how good of corners your team has. I don't care that the Packers have Jair Alexander. I don't care that Trayvon Diggs is playing really well for the Cowboys. Because the Vikings have two good wide receivers, and they have K.J. Osborne, who's shown that he can be a competent number three. I, honestly, I'm not worried about who can cover the Vikings. I'm worried about the pass rush. I'm worried about if Kirk Cousins can stay upright. I'm worried if Dalvin Cook can get a big enough hold to do something with. 
I'm not worried about any other part of the defense, but the Minnesota, or I'm not worried about any other part of an opposing defense that plays the Minnesota Vikings, except for the offensive line and how it's going to compete against the opposing team's defensive line. The point is, if the Vikings play a team that has a good pass rush, they're going to almost lose. And that's just because of how this offensive line is. It's going to be tough sledding, and they're going to have to make some big improvements if they're going to want to do it in that department. When you look at Carolina, they're uh, averaging 4.8 yards per play. That's still one of the best uh, in the NFL. When you look at uh, in the passing game, when you look at their yards per attempt, it's 5.1. It's, again, uh, pretty low compared to the rest of the league. And when you – or net yards per attempt, I should say. And when you look at rushing yards per attempt, Carolina is 4.5. That's a little bit bigger. But, again, their passing yards is down lower, and the Vikings are going to have to throw to win some of these games. And when you look at – again, so they play Carolina – Next game on there, they have the bye week, and next they play the Cowboys. Well, how good is the Cowboys defense, you say? Well, they're also pretty darn good as well, because keep in mind, the Cowboys have some of those good uh, rush edge rushers um, on their roster. They have some guys that it's going to be pretty tough to get around, and when you look at, when you look at other players on the roster, uh, other rosters, I should say, the Ravens, they have some good edge rushers. When you look at the Chargers, they have Bosa. When you look at the Packers, you, they have the Smith boys. They have uh, Rashawn Gary who's coming into his own. They have some guys who can get after the quarterback. When you have the 49ers, oh, you have a Bosa brother again. You have all you have all of the pass rushers that San Francisco boasts, one that gave the Vikings complete issues when they tried to play Shanahan in the playoffs a couple of years ago. And then you have the Steelers. Big Ben isn't what he used to be, but guess what? If your offense can't get anything going like they did last week because of the defense, they have TJ Watt, they have uh, other edge rushers there as well that can make some plays, that's going to be tough for you. When you look at the Bears, the Bears have always given the Vikings fits with Khalil Mack and with all the rest of the, of the gang in tow. It's been tough sledding for the Vikings to get anything going against the Bears' pass rush. And when you look at the Rams, I mean, they have... They have Aaron Donald, obviously. They have Jalen Ramsey in the backfield, but honestly, I don't even care because I'm okay. Like, I'm not saying Justin Jefferson is going to torch Jalen Ramsey. He may get shut down by Jalen Ramsey. It doesn't matter, but then you have Thielen, you have Osborne, you have other options, you have a good running back. But the problem is, is if your passing game gets nothing because your quarterback can't stay upright, it doesn't matter. And that's why this offensive line is so crucial because the Vikings are playing some teams with some pretty dang good edge rushers. When you look at... Uh, the Packers, again, the Bears. These are all teams that the Vikings are going to have to play. These are all teams that do a really, really good job at getting to the quarterback. And that's not to say that they're unbeatable teams, but it's to say that, you know, this is going to be a tough one if you are if you have a lot of opponents who are really good at rushing the quarterback. Because as we proved with Cleveland, their corners, it's not that their corners shut down Thielen Jefferson. Jefferson had a good game. It's that... Kirk Cousins was under duress, and he was under duress all game. And when he is under duress like that, he cannot set his feet. He can't make the right reads, and it's just not going to go. We'll talk about the right reads and Kirk Cousins being under pressure in a second. But you look, um, here's another one, a guy who's been getting a lot of pressures for Pittsburgh, Tyson Alou. Alou, Alou, uh, he has been getting a, uh, 
a bit of pressures as well. Uh, when you look at, uh, he has five combined pressures so far uh, this season. And then you look at a guy for Detroit, Michael Brockers. He's going to be a guy that they'll have to watch out for. He has 13 combined pressures as well. Uh, Baltimore has Calais Campbell. The uh, Looking ahead to some of the Vikings' other opponents, you have Cam Hayward, of course, for Pittsburgh. You have Akeem Hicks and Marcus Hunt along with along with uh, Khalil Mack, and looking forward here to some other the other opponents. Of course, uh, you have Linval Joseph as well on the line with the Chargers. The point is to say is that the Vikings have their fair share of guys who can get to the quarterback that they're going to have to defend against, and if they can't figure out how to do it, they're going to look like they did against Cleveland. Now, I understand Cleveland has the special case scenario where they have where they have Jadavian Clowney and Miles Garrett, two number one overall picks, who are really good talents. But it still doesn't matter because all it takes is one of the offensive line uh, guys not having a good day. The problem is with the offensive line, too, is there's nobody to turn to. There's nobody to go to the bench for Ole Udo. Wyatt Davis isn't ready. There's nobody to go to for Garrett Bradbury. There's nobody to go to for Ezra Cleveland. There's nobody to go to for Rashad Hill because Christian Derrissaw isn't ready either. If you're the Vikings, you're stuck with these five guys, and you're stuck with them for the foreseeable future because, again, the Vikings fail to address the offensive line properly every year, and when they do, when they do draft a guy like Davis, it hasn't, uh, Derrissaw, I should say, and then you try and get Davis in the third round, neither have looked ready yet, whether due to injury or just being rookies. It's been hard to find. Garrett Bradbury has his moments, but gets pushed back when he faces really big defensive linemen. Ezra Cleveland, again, has his moments, but still trying to develop in the NFL. Besides Brian O'Neill, everybody on this offensive line has question marks, and they're paying the price for that. But looking to Kirk Cousins, I want to talk about this too, because I saw the other day, or earlier today, I should say, on Twitter, and I saw that there was a tweet talking about Cousins, if he's open, uh, he's his wide open K.J. Osborne, if he's looking, if he's paying attention, he sees K.J. Osborne wide open running down the left hash mark, he's gone. That's a touchdown. He doesn't even have to hit him in stride. He's just wide open. If he just lofts it in that general direction, at the very least, it's a 20-yard gain, and I think it ended up being a third down play as well. And, you know, you're saying Cousins, like you have to try and figure out some way to make the throw. Like, you're not even looking at your at that guy right there. He's like waving his hands in the air like nobody's covering me. And, of course, that leads the the Kirk Riders on Twitter to just go insane because it's like, whoa, he's got no time to throw and he's trying to make the progressions and all this kind of stuff. And, and look, I get that general argument. I think that, obviously, like, we don't know what each quarterback is thinking in the moment, but these are ones where you'd grill Aaron Rodgers doing the same thing. You'd make fun of him. You'd say, Aaron Rodgers is a guy wide open and he doesn't even miss, you know. But when it's Kirk Cousins, there's the excuses. There's the problem with Kirk Cousins isn't that he's a flawed quarterback. It's that there's always the excuses. Is that nobody can just own up and that we can't be realistic about what Kirk Cousins is. Kirk Cousins is a talented but flawed quarterback. And a lot of those times, it, the reasons that he loses isn't because he's not talented. It's because he's flawed in his talent. He's flawed in that he has trouble making the reads when it comes to quick judgment. He has trouble under pressure because, again, it speeds up the clock. Kirk, when he's on a corporate schedule, is fine, but when Kirk has to speed it up, when Kirk has to go off script, that's when he gets into trouble. 
And we can't be honest about that. We have to blame the offensive line. We have to blame Zimmer. We have to blame Kubiak. We have to blame, you know, somebody. And I'm not saying that Kirk is totally blameless on that play. Ole Udo gets driven back right, you know, gets driven back into the play. But when you see a guy like that, you have to make some kind of play in that situation. And why we're never allowed to criticize the quarterback that we pay 38 to $45 million a year for, I'm sorry. We pay the quarterback to make the plays in spite of how the team is doing. And I get that he can't do it every time. Aaron Rodgers can't do it every time. But Aaron Rodgers does it more often than not. We look at Tom Brady. He does it more often than not. He finds ways to overcome his obstacles and win. And yeah, it doesn't happen every time. And sometimes it blows up in his face. But more often than not, he still finds a way to win. And those guys don't always... I know that they're... Uh, darlings in front of the media, but when it comes to their own fan bases, they don't get excuses like this made for them for every little screw-up that they have, and that's the problem with Kirk Cousins. Because, yeah, he had pressure coming in his face. It's a tough throw, but it's one that you have to attempt making considering that it was in the fourth quarter, it was late in the game, this was your chance to really do something, and to get a wide-open guy like that is an opportunity that you don't get in the NFL very often. So that just goes to, to my point of Kirk Cousins is a good quarterback, He's talented, but, man, when that pass rush gets there, he's not a good quarterback, and he is a guy that screws up. He's a guy that has the Kirk moments, and it goes hand-in-hand, hand. and that's why we talked about the offensive line. That's why we talk about Kirk Cousins here today for the Vikings, because they go hand-in-hand. Hand. When the offensive line plays bad, so does Kirk. If Kirk plays bad, it's probably because of the offensive line, and those two aren't mutually exclusive, and those two don't necessarily – absolve the other from blame. Just because Kirk's playing bad doesn't mean the offensive line gets a free pass. They played awful on Sunday. Just because the offensive line plays bad doesn't mean that we say, well, Kirk is this perfect special boy and we can never touch him. He's Kirky. Do you know he sings Oklahoma uh, in his uh, college or church production or whatever it was? You can't touch him. And I just don't agree with that. You don't get to be this untouchable status. You're, no quarterback rarely ever is. Even Mahomes, you can look at the throws he makes and say that he still forces it into coverage. He still makes mistakes. Kirk Cousins is capable of making a mistake. And the fact that you get so defensive that every time somebody criticizes your special quarterback that it's, I don't know, I don't get it. It's not to say Cousins isn't worth defending. It's just to say to die on every every criticism. To die on the hill of every Kirk Cousins criticism is just beyond to me. But... That's the point of this game. The offensive line, we talked about last week, could they potentially be good? We looked at some of their scores. They were better than expected, but they weren't great either. They were all competent. But the problem with being competent is when you have people that are way more better and way more talented than you, you run into a problem. And they prove to be more than you can handle, and that's what we found out. And the Vikings, they have some tough matchups when you look at the Cowboys, the Chargers, the Niners, the Steelers. Some of these defenses that they're lining up against have the potential to wreck their game plan because I don't care if you're playing washed-up Big Ben. I don't care if you're playing Aaron Rodgers. I don't care if you're playing the bleeping Lions or Jaguars. If your offense can't get anything going and they score seven points, you will lose. All right, let's move on here to the Minnesota Timberwolves here because they had a preseason game last night. And uh, we're at that kind of point where we're waiting for the Wild and the Wolves to get their seasons going. So we're kind of talking about them here as well. Uh, we only have preseason games to break down, so nothing of super hard substance to really talk about. But when you look at the Timberwolves, 
I didn't think we'd be this hyped after a preseason game against New Orleans, but here we are. Uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves won last night against the Pelicans 117-114, and they looked good. They looked, I mean, obviously it's a preseason game, so you're not trying to win the game, you're not doing whatever. They put up 40 points in the second half, in the second quarter, excuse me, while also only giving up 17 during that time. And I said that there was a couple things to watch during the game. I said, how does the defense look under Finch? They gave up 17 points in the second quarter. That's pretty darn good. Even Patrick Beverly basically said something along the lines of, it's only preseason, but you still have to be on your game to only allow that in a quarter. And the Pat Beverly impact, I think it has been real. The Wolves have Patrick Beverly just gives a bland team like the Wolves some personality outside of Anthony Edwards. Anthony Edwards brought personality, but he was kind of like this cute, you know, this cute kid. He comes out, oh, look at him. He's got some spunk. You know, he's he's BSing everybody. He kind of likes to do the back and forth. Patrick Beverly, though, he gives the team an edge. He gives the team some kind of character. And I'm not saying that it's 100% good, but he gives them some personality. Patrick Beverly is you. Come up to me, and I will make it tough on you. I will make you work for 48 minutes or however long I'm on the court, and it's going to be awful. And it's that kind of mentality that I think can rub off on the Wolves on defense. I mean, the possibility of Hakogi and Beverly on the court for defensive purposes at the same time is going to be really nice, I think, for the Timberwolves. It's going to be a breath of fresh air that they probably need on defense. But how important is defense when you look at it? Because... Chris Finch said something along the lines of, uh, this is a tweet from Dane Moore. He was asked a question about um, rebounding and boxing out in the NBA. He says, is it dead? And he says, oh, rebounding, boxing out, that died a long time ago in the NBA, which is why it makes it even more important to attack the glass. And I think that that's 100% true. I think that in the NBA, look, defense is dead. You're not going to get, like when I say the Wolves need to improve on defense, I don't mean they need to be, a, you know, a 1980 Fairs, 1985 Bears-esque NBA-style team. They just need to be a team that can not give up 140 points a night. That's what I'm saying, because the Wolves can score. But if they can just prevent teams from dropping 130-point games every single night at the target center, they're going to win a lot of games. Because you could see that under Finch. He was able to get the offense going, but the problem is the defense still didn't improve last season, and that was where it was hard to catch up. Now I think if they can at least just become a league average defense and become an above average offense, I think there's some room to grow in terms of that aspect. But taking a look back at the defense again, Finch, of course, said over the course of training camp that Ant has been a monster on defense, and you could see it in the preseason game because he had a couple plays. I mean, he had his typical uh you know, poster dunk, but the reason he got the dunk was on a fast break because of a turnover that he caused jumping the passing lane, which I think is something that's good to see for Ant is energy. He brings energy and just wanting to be good on defense, and I think Patrick Beverly can help grow his defensive instincts maybe, or maybe just his kind of ability in that aspect. So then you have Pat Beverly, you have uh, Okogi, and you have just Ant who's playing semi-better defense to at least offset when you have Cat and D'Lo and some of these other guys on the floor. But again, it's so hard for the Wolves because there's a lot to be excited about in terms of Ant is growing. They are a talented roster on paper, despite 
the all the losses that they've had. Patrick Beverly is a guy who brings a veteran presence, gives an edge, can be kind of that locker room guy. That that way it takes pressure off Cat from having to be that. And then you have Chris Finch, a guy who's molding the team. He's getting them a good offense. You saw the offense take leaps and bounds when Ryan Saunders was let go. I mean, this Wolves team, there's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot where you can say, hey, they can do something with that. And that's going to be pretty darn fun to watch this season. But of course, with the Timberwolves, I just can't. I just can't call them a playoff team. They should make the playoffs, at least the play-in game. They should at least be top 10 in the West this year. But I don't trust the Timberwolves. And I've said this constantly here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast, which is... I the, the the Wolves are the Cleveland Browns of the NFL. I do not trust them until they actually prove it to me. The Cleveland Browns were a dumpster fire up until last year, and until they actually won double-digit games and made the playoffs and won a postseason game. Now you're like, okay, cool. They've earned that respect back. They've earned that benefit of the doubt back that they lost being so incompetent over the years, even putting together talented rosters, feeling guys like were the right hires, everything still blew up in their face for the Cleveland Browns, and the Minnesota Timberwolves were the NBA equivalent of that. They kept making head coaching hires and personnel changes and player trades, and no matter who they brought in the building, whether it was Andrew Wiggins, whether it was Jimmy Butler, whether it was Robert Covington, Tibbs, Saunders, all these kind of uh, things, Gerson Rosas, everything in and out, nothing really... Ever, even moves on paper that seem smart always just blew up in your face. And that's the Minnesota Timberwolves because they are just a poverty franchise right now as long as Glenn Taylor remains the owner. And the biggest bright spot for the Wolves isn't any of the things that they're doing on the court. It's the fact that Glenn Taylor is on his way out. He's sunsetting his ownership with the team. That is when things can start to change. But even then, they have to prove that they're a good basketball team. I'm not going to give the Wolves the benefit of the doubt and say they're a team that's going to be in the playoffs. Even though there's the potential for them to be, and they should be, I'm not going to say that the Wolves are going to make the playoffs, because until proven otherwise, the Wolves are going to be a dumpster fire until they actually go out on the court and win games and don't look chaotic doing it. The Wolves won games in 2017, but they were a mess. They were a talented team that was a mess because of the instability with Tibbs and Jimmy and Cat and Wiggins and, and all that kind of stuff. So until the Wolves prove that they can win and win and look like a team that can grow together, I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But they are still talented. Make no mistake about it. They are going to at least be entertaining. So now looking towards uh, the Minnesota Twins here as we get ready for them. Taking a look at catchers here, uh, we're going through now each day, we're going to go through a, each position on the Minnesota Twins and just take a look at what they have going forward here because now the offseason, the team has probably already started this process a long time ago, but they're looking at what do they have on their roster and where can they improve and where do they feel like is the easiest way to improve so we're looking at catchers right now for the Minis excuse me, for the Minnesota Twins. And you have Mitch Garver, Ryan Jeffers. We don't count the turtle. He hasn't played catcher in a long time. Uh, Mitch Garver and Ryan Jeffers are the two catchers here. And when you look at Mitch Garver, I mean, he's the front runner to start. He had some injury issues, but Garver looked like he was returning to form a little bit this season. I mean, it was kind of... 
sporadic, but he had a bunch of freak injuries. But when you look at the numbers Garver was able to put up, he was able to just kind of prove that, you know, 2020 was a bit of a hiccup, but I'm still ready to play. I'm still ready to be able to take a main bulk of the starts behind the plate. When you look at uh, catcher, when you look at the catcher for the Twins, his uh, he hit 13 home runs this season. He had an OPS of 875. When you look at his uh, WAR according to Baseball Reference, it was 2.1, which is about where you'd want it to be. Keep in mind, uh, starter is about two plus, so he's right in that solid category. Mitch Garver is. Um, he's a guy that can hit the ball. He's a guy. That's, I mean, his catching is probably the limit to his game is probably the weakest part of it in terms of actually being a defensive catcher, but he makes up for it by his ability to hit for power. Garver is a guy that I think the twins should keep around, um, right now. And, uh, I mean, he's not going to, uh, he's not going to go anywhere. Um, he's not going to be a free agent until 2024. So Garver is a guy that is going to, I think, be the starting catcher for the Twins when it's all said and done because it's so hard to find a powerful catcher like Garver is, and I think that the Twins have kind of landed on that, and I think that they've landed on Garver being their starting catcher, at least until something happens in the immediate aftermath that could change that. But I really don't think that there is anything that would lead me to believe that Garver is on his way out. I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be a guy that the Twins are going to lean on uh, in that catching position. But they also have Ryan Jeffers there. Ryan Jeffers, of course, has been a good kind of uh, backup catcher and has done well uh, when he's needed to come in and fill uh, when Mitch Garver has been hurt. Because of course, this year there was a lot of kind of freak. Uh, injuries with Garver taking a uh, baseball to the cojones and needing to be out for a month with Garver just having other injury issues as well. But Jeffers looks like a guy that can play as well. Uh, maybe more of a backup catcher, maybe more in that reserve type role, but he still is a guy that can come in and, you know, maybe someday if, you know, there was the question at the beginning of the season if maybe Jeffers was going to be that catcher and they were just kind of waiting for him to get hot over Garver and just keep rolling with him. That hasn't happened. Garver has kind of proved that he should be the guy the Twins look at going forward, but I still think Jeffers is a guy you can rely on a little bit. He has a 670 OPS, which isn't quite where you want it to be, but still able to hit 14 home runs in only uh, 267 at-bats. Still pretty good. Uh, when you look at his war, he wasn't able to generate quite enough, and actually when you look at this season, he generated barely uh, over a half of a win. But keep in mind, it's also because he hasn't, he spent a lot of time uh, not in the starting lineup as well. But when you look at the catching options, I really don't think the Twins go after any big name catchers because, I mean, honestly, it's probably not where you spend your money anyways. If the Twins are going to spend money, uh, if the Twins are going to spend money anywhere this offseason, it's going to be pitching uh, or re-signing Buxton. But... I don't think even if the Twins may want to spend money on a position player that they're going to spend it doing that. Because when you look at some of these catchers, there's Buster Posey, Jan Gomes, Christian Vasquez, all these guys. I don't think the Twins go after any of them, really. I think if you're the Twins, I think you kind of go in the vein of that Alex Avila-type signing if you're really going to bring in a new catcher. Um, I, I think that 
if you are going to do anything with that, you bring kind of that veteran, maybe a guy who is kind of expected, like you might play half the year in St. Paul, you might play half the year in Minneapolis, just kind of going back and forth between being just an extra reserve catcher that has uh, some major league innings, somebody who you can trust maybe when you bring in these older or these younger pitchers, excuse me, to have a veteran who can come in and play, you know, maybe you bring in uh Somebody in the turn. I mean, Alex Avila is going to be an impending free agent. I don't think the Twins bring him back, but there is a case to be made that you bring in a guy like that. You bring in a, uh, you bring in a Manuel Pena. You bring in an Austin Romine. You bring in kind of some of these kind of guys that maybe aren't going to be. They're not going to come in and expected to be starters, but they're going to be nice reserve guys you can use off the bench. And in terms of Twins prospects, there's really no one catching prospect that is right on the cusp of getting to the majors or one that really should be worried about the tw- that Jeffers or Garver should be worried about taking at bats from them. So that's where the Twins stand at catcher right now when you look at uh, their situations. I think that they are a team that is pretty darn set at catcher. I think they have two young catching options that they kind of and they've done this with other positions, but I think they'll do it at catcher and they'll keep doing it is they just say, all right, Garver's our guy. Jeffers is going to play when he needs a day off. But if Garver's slumping and we feel like Jeffers is hitting, we're going to ride the hot hand until it doesn't work for us anymore. Baldelli is shown to do that. He did it uh, with Jason Castro and Mitch Garver for sure in 2019. Did it with Scope and Luisa Rise in at second base in 2019 as well. Uh, and honestly, it's not a bad theory if you have two guys who are good enough to be starters but not good enough to be kind of cemented as the starter, I think it works. But I think Mitch Garver proves that he can be the catcher of this team going forward, and that's good to see because it's one less thing they have to worry about. This Twins lineup overall shouldn't have a lot of question marks when it comes to their team. It's just they need to figure out the pitching, and they need to maybe tweak some things on the lineup, and there should be a team that's expected to compete. But, of course, Twins and good pitching, that's a big if. All right, let's wrap up the Minnesota Sports Podcast here, and let's talk about the Minnesota Wild. They got the preseason win against um, they got their preseason win against the Avalanche last night, and now they are moving on. They're going to play the Blues tomorrow at the X, but that doesn't really matter. The preseason, I mean, their preseason NHL games. There's really not a lot you can take away from them, especially with the rosters being as big as they are. The one thing, though, is that Kaprizov made his preseason debut, and he did not miss a beat. He got a goal in the matchup. Uh, he played well with Zuccarillo. When you look at the, when you look at Kirill Kaprizov, he's their best player, and him coming back off the extension talks, and now that he's paid, and now that he's making all this money, that it's in the books. And after all the drama, that was, will he play? Will he not? Is he going to stay in Russia? All this kind of stuff. He came out. He played really well on the home ice. And you know what? I'm not worried. Kaprizov is going to be fine. He's going to be one of those guys that can just get on the plane from Moscow, and he's just going to show up and play well. Kirill Kaprizov, good. I think there's no reason to believe that the Wild should be concerned about him. I think he's going to have another great season. How well the Wild do still kind of remains to be seen, but if they, Kirill Kaprizov is not going to be a reason that they struggle if they do. Kirill Kaprizov is still the lifeblood of this team. He still skates around the ice. I mean, even the goal he got, he almost set up on the assist with Zuccarillo. He just made the extra pass to set him up for the goal. Kaprizov still flies around the ice. He still knows the reads to make. He's still playing hard. This Minnesota Wild team is going to be pretty dang 
uh, competitive at least, and they're going to be pretty dang entertaining when you have Kirill Kaprizov on the ice for you. All right, well, that'll do it here for the Minnesota Sports Podcast for today. Of course, we'll be back tomorrow. It is our What About Them Wednesday, and we're going to talk about uh, the NFC North opponents. We're going to talk about some AL Central opponents, one of whom is getting ready for the postseason this week, as well as looking at uh, the Western Conference and the Big Ten West and all that kind of stuff as well. We'll be back here tomorrow on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.